and welcome to Fun Problems, the problems of fun. I'm Peter C. Hayward. I'm AJ Brandon. And this is a podcast about the fun problems of designing fun problems. It is a game design podcast hosted by the two most handsome gentlemen in the world. We just recently won that award. Well done, us. We were up against some steep competition. There are a lot of people in this world. <laughs> but none as handsome as us. And what are we talking about today, AJ? Today we're talking about Robotopia. And what is Robotopia? So Robotopia in its final state is a worker placement game that takes place in a really unique world and has some unique mechanisms. It's about a revolution against the master robot who rules the factory world with an iron fist, literally. (laughs) In the game, you're trying to gain influence with these different robot guilds, and you're trying to eventually bring down the master robot usurping them and becoming the new ruler of Robotopia. How to do? Yeah, good. Now, this podcast is not normally about specific games, but this one is one of my designs. And so this is a designer diary slash interview of sorts. Mm-hmm. This was originally timed to go live during the Kickstarter, but unfortunately the Kickstarter has not funded, but we promised that we would talk about it. So we are handsome, handsome men of our words. And so we are sticking to the plan. We could probably do a whole episode about why I didn't succeed on Kickstarter, but uh, I'm not in the mood to do that. <laughs> Straight after cancelling the campaign. <laughs> I'm sure we will do that at some point. I think that's a really useful topic, and I think that that's the type of thing that doesn't get covered much in the podcasts. And yeah. we do love to cover things that other podcasts don't cover. <laughs> yes, uh, it'll be a good case study. When we had our talk about Cartouche with Jeff, we had talked about how Robotopia and Cartouche both came from one original design. Do you want to go into how that happened? Yeah, so, by the way, I posted designer diaries for Robotopia up on BGG, so if you read those, there might be some repeated content. Unfortunately, uh, I can't do 11 designer diaries in a podcast without repeating things. Those dive into almost everything we'll talk about in, in a lot of detail, if, if you want that, with pictures, too. The origins were that I played Feast for Odin at a board game convention called Niagara Board Game Weekend, which is really good, I recommend it. Fell in love. It's still my favorite game, up there with Istanbul. Those are my two favorite games of all time, just amazing. And I was like, I want to design a heavy game, except for I didn't really know how to design a heavy game. So Feast for Odin has polyominoes, so I designed it as a work placement, so I tried to design a polyomino work placement game, and people really liked both sides of that. They liked the polyominoes, and that became Cartouche, and the worker placement through various different games. I often think of Robotopia as like the game from the ashes of the ashes of the ashes because Knights of Atlantis became Coral Kingdoms, which became Cartouche. And then I worked on a generation ship game and then a tower defense game, (laughs) another game called Gadgets. And all of those things eventually became Robotopia. So Robotopia is really like the flower growing out of a pile of corpses. I remember some of those games. I remember the tower defense game. (laughs) (laughs) The interesting thing about Robotopia is the worker placement system. So you place a worker either on a single space and activate that space, between two spaces and activate both of them, or between three spaces and activate all three. I love that system. Oh, thank you. I'm, I'm very proud of it. I think it works really nicely. So you can get yellow workers on one space, red workers on two, blue workers on three, or green workers that can be placed as red, yellow, or blue workers. That came out of the system that was originally tacked onto Cartouche, basically, back when it was Knights of Atlantis. But before it became Robotopia, it was in a tower defense game, and it was the exact same problem. It was a very interesting tower defense mechanism, and then a very complicated worker placement system. And Tom Lang, who's the co-designer of Village Pillage, I sent him a video showing how to play through this tower defense game because I wanted to theme it after Village Pillage. And he was just like, dude, in, in this 12 minute exclamation video, you spend 10 minutes talking about the worker placement system <laughs> and like two minutes 
defending towers. Did you play that tower defense game? I did, yes. What do you remember about it? It's a little bit vague, but yeah, I remember there was a lot of stuff that I did that wasn't defending or attacking the towers. Yeah, that's the exact feedback <laughs> I got. And that stuff became Robotopia. <laughs> I'm trying to remember back. The worker placement system wasn't the same as Robotopia, was it? Exactly the same as Robotopia. Oh my gosh. Because I remember, I loved that worker placement system, but I guess just recency bias, I remembered it in Robotopia as opposed to it being in that system. I just remembered playing that with you. In that system, and, and this is the problem, in the tower defense game, which is called Tower Power, because I was riffing off Village Pillage, in Tower Power, you wanted to be playing a tower defense game. Mm -hmm. And this worker placement system was essentially the thing stopping you from playing the tower defense game. Totally. And again, I really thought the worker placement system was cool. <laughs> I really liked it. The one key difference between them. So in Robotopia, every time you run out of workers, you have to refresh. So you take the refresh action mm -hmm. and that has two parts. Firstly, all of your generators make new robots. And then you move the master robot, who's a big mini who sits on the board, into the next quadrant and clear every space that it touches and turn those robots into cubes. So red robots become red cubes, green robots become green cubes, etc. That wasn't there for tower power. Instead, when you cleared a quadrant, you would just, if you cleared the blue quadrant, you would get a blue cube for every worker in the blue quadrant. It sounds like a very minor difference, but I think it just makes it a lot more fun. <laughs> yeah. Because you feel like you're turning one thing into another instead of just like arbitrarily clearing and getting a thing. And secondly, like I said, the worker placement system in Tower Power was getting in the way of tower defense. People wanted to be playing this interesting tower defense game. And I was like, ah, but you gotta earn it. You gotta play this complex system. And so after Tom Lang's notes, I did something which I have never done before. And I tried to make the absolute smallest version. <laughs> and this is something I'm sure we've talked about before, making an MVP. Yep, 100%. It's hard because I, I just want to add system after system after system after system. I find it really hard. And so for this one, I was like, okay, this worker placement system, which I really like, is all the game is going to be. Different people design in different ways, obviously. When I'm designing, I can't bring something to the table unless it's got like all the bits. I've played prototypes before where they're like, hey, I don't know how this ends, so just work towards this. And I think that's an amazing way to design. I really wish I could design like that. I can't do it. I. I think because I have like a systems brain, I need a complete, discrete, concrete system in my head to actually um, be able to play test something. So even if I'm like, I'm just testing this part of it, I will still build out an end game. Even if it's not good, I, I can do a bad one, but it just has to be there so that everything like fits together and locks together nicely. And so for Robotopia, I had a way of winning and, and this and that, and I had a, had a full prototype and I brought it to the table. And this is something that's only happened to me a few times in my life as a designer. It was fun. <laughs> uh, and by that, I mean, like, there was an inherent tactile pleasure to it. Like, it was just inherently fun to do the thing. And so now when I'm designing, that's what I'm always looking for. I have a game that we've probably talked about a dozen times now called Agricultists. And the central action of Agricultists is compelling. And that's what I want in a game. If I can find a central action that's compelling, then the work is to design the rest of the game, obviously. But you want the thing that you're doing every turn to be fun. And in Robotopia, the thing you're doing were fun. The rest is a disaster. Like nothing else really worked. But the central loop was really engaging and compelling and fun. And in some ways that was great because it meant that I was like, oh, wow, this is a game that people actually want to play again. In some ways it was really annoying because at the end of the game, I'd be like, so, you know, thoughts, questions, blah, blah, blah. And people would be like, well, this was fun. And I'd be like, yeah, I know that's fun. And it was sort of like harder to see what was wrong with the game because the base action was fun, if that makes sense. Yeah, it can definitely distract from it. 
I actually had a similar thing. I'm just going back to a bunch of my older designs I haven't touched in a while. I hadn't touched Colossus since I started working at Jellybean. And recently I went back to that design and I ended up redoing a lot of stuff from the last time I touched it. And it was very difficult because I kept getting feedback that people were having a really good time playing it. There were a lot of things that they really enjoyed about it. But the things that they enjoyed were things that had to change. So even though people were having fun <laughs> with that version of it, I couldn't release it the way it was without changing the thing people were enjoying. I had to go back in and say, okay, how do I make new fun? How do I create this experience again using different mechanisms? Because these mechanisms cannot work in the final product. Yeah, yeah. You and I have disagreed on the definition of bottom-up and top-down. I think of it as bottom-up is when you have a mechanism and you build out from that mechanism. And top-down is when you have an idea, you have a theme or like a world or a general scope, and you make the game from that top and, and, and you know, work down to the mechanisms. And I find it really hard to design top-down. I'm, I'm very much a bottom-up designer in, in that definition I just gave. And so... Are you saying we disagree with definitions or how to design? The definition. Okay. Mine's very similar. It's just like top-down is theme and bottom-up is mechanics. Oh, okay. Interesting. Maybe I'm disagreeing with the past version myself. <laughs> <laughs> so right now I'm, I'm working on a brand new prototype. I'm working on prototypes all the time right now, mostly because I'm stressed and I use game design to distract myself from stress. It's great. Very healthy relationship with it. And so... This one I've mentioned to a few people and everyone I've mentioned it to has been like, oh, please make that game. I want to buy that game. I've not designed a single mechanism for it yet. I'm just kind of working on like the world and the scope. And so it's my kind of first time designing a game top down. No, not first time. I designed a game called Alien Poker where the pitch was really good, but the game never worked. <laughs> <laughs> and so Robotopia was very much a bottom up design where I was like, okay, I've got this thing that you do on your turn, which is fun. Same as agricultists. Now, how do I build a game around that? There's worse places to start, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, for sure. It, it's definitely, it's, I'd, I'd much rather be like, this is really good, now I've got to make everything else good, rather than like, I got nothing, but the idea is good. <laughs> and it's interesting, because I think that, yeah, that's not the strongest place to start, because like you say, you know, when you start with having like the whole game planned out and you make it, and then one part of it's fun, and you have to redo all the other systems and subsystems that are built, baked into the system, it's going to be tough. I also see completely why you did it that way. Like, if you look at the finished product of Cartouche, and if you look at the finished product of Robotopia, those are two clear examples of things that are well integrated, and particularly Robotopia. Like, everything feeds into itself. That's a very focused design with a lot of attention put into how the systems interact with each other. And in a way, like, I can totally imagine, like, the worker placement being used in a different game entirely. But the way that they're done, it's almost hard to imagine what it looks like when you pull out one subsystem. Right. The, the way that you get the equivalent of victory points without having to explain how the game works, the influence with the guilds, if you wanted to change how those worked, you're changing a third of the game, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's interesting because it is a very simple game in a few ways, which, which is weird because it's a reasonably heavy game. Mm. My design background is obviously jelly bean games, like games for kids and families that take five minutes and, like, you know, 30 seconds to each and five minutes to play. And so Cartouche and Robotopia are my first two big games and Cartouche is a good mid-size euro and I think Robotopia is like mid to heavy I always compare it to the North Sea series it's, it's roughly the same weight as those some of them I feel are heavier like Paladins feels at least mentally it's very very heavy god I love Paladins I just played that again the other day it's, it's <laughs> 
by far my favorite Garfield game. I really love it. So yeah, Robotopia was very much designed with that mentality in mind of like simple, simple, simple. Despite the fact that it's, it's <laughs> sprawling and huge and a little <laughs> clunky in some ways, it was definitely designed to be as simple as possible. It's so funny that you say it's designed to be as simple as possible because like I see elements of that. If you played the game and you're in this discussion, then you totally know what that means. You know, like the game is in many ways very elegant. Like I said, the way that things feed into each other is very smooth and interesting. On the other hand, there's a lot of stuff going on in that game. Yeah, it really suffers from um, something that I'm trying to move out of as a designer, not to not to diss Robotopia, which I think is one of my favorite things I've ever designed. It suffers a little bit from the same problem as Dracula's Feast, which is like to play the game, you have to learn every part of the game. Yeah, totally. <laughs> a lot of games will hide mechanisms away until you encounter them. Robotopia, Dracula's Feast, even Cartouche don't really do that. You start playing these games and you have to learn all the things and then when you start you never have to learn anything again which is great but um yeah when, when you start it can be definitely a bit of an information overload yeah i was just playing twilight imperium fourth edition the other day with a bunch of people who hadn't played before and two of them had barely played any board games at all oh interesting like one of them was basically uh, going in blind in terms of board games when i was teaching it i was really struck with how much i was able to hide because of the way that ti does things yeah so key. Round one, I'm like, all right, go in and get some resources this round. Okay, cool. Yeah. Second round, okay, you have a little bit more reach. These are your two objectives. That's it. Pick one of these to do. Do everything you can to make it happen. And that really helped focus them. And then not even the political phase, right? The political phase, I'm not even going to teach that yet. Two, three rounds into the game, that's when I'll have to teach it. And so until then, you just don't have to worry about it, really. Yeah. So part of the reason this happens with Robotopia is that it doesn't have victory points. And this is sort of one of the USPs of the game. Might have told the story before. I was playing this in Florida at Dice Tower Con, and Eric Lang was there. And he's Toronto, so we know each other. And I was like, hey, Eric, can you come play my Euro? He doesn't generally like to play prototypes, but uh, he knows me and he likes me. So I told him about it. And he was like, okay, how do you win? Like, how do you get victory points? I was like, no victory points. He was like, no victory points? And sat down and played it. Like, I, I don't know if he would have without it. So... It's definitely something that very few other people are doing, the, the no victory points. But as part of that, in a game with victory points, it does allow you to hide a lot more. I taught Feast for Odin the other day, and there's a whole half the board that I was like, look, don't worry about this so much. Like, just don't get your victory points from that area. Whereas if you're playing a game like Robotopia, where you don't have victory points, you're just trying to do a certain thing to win, you sort of want to know what all the different things are, because there's only, you know, it's essentially four points to win. So you need to know exactly what the different ways of getting points are. In terms of hiding information, one thing that I was struck by is the fact that you start with action cards when the way that you get action cards in the game, basically it'll take you multiple actions in order to be able to get the resources to then take the action that will get you an action card. Was there ever consideration to not start you with action cards so that you don't have to teach those right away? Yeah, so action cards were a relatively late addition to the game. And I played with Trey Chambers and Eric Gauss, the designers of respectively Argent the Consortium and Spirit Island. And so I played with them before action cards were in, and they were like, hey, this is a really smooth, sort of what you were saying, it all clicks together really nicely, but it's missing something. And I was like, oh, two of the best designers of all time playing my game, please tell me what it's missing. <laughs> and they said it was missing those big moments. I think of them as spikes. Just that moment where you do a thing and it changes the board state for everyone and it changes your strategy and so on and so forth. So action cards came in as a direct result of that playtest. So the action cards in, in Robotopia are interesting because they all have a requirement. You can't just play it on your turn and get six wheat or whatever. <laughs> for one, there's no wheat in the game. But each of them is like, when you play a red robot, do this. 
when you play a green robot, do this. When you go to this area, do this. And because they have that requirement, they become short-term goals. And the more heavy games I design, the more I realize the utmost important of short-term goals. Because you can teach someone like, hey, here's how you win. But in a game, especially with no victory points, where like your first real step towards victory is gonna be 10 turns in, you need to know what you're doing for the first two turns. And so by starting people with an action card, it was like, hey, if you play a red robot, you will get this thing. Then they're like, well, I, I want to play this card, so I'm going to go get a red robot. How do I get a red robot? Oh, I do this. A leads to B leads to the action card, which gets them closer to victory points, etc. The reason that it starts, it does add a bit to the teach, but it gives them that short-term goal, and that's so valuable. I hadn't thought of that before, but that's really clever, tying in a short-term goal into the powerful action card that they want to play anyway. That's really clever. Like I said, I was just playing Paladins. Oh, God, that's a good game. That game does such a good job of making sure that you always have something to work towards. You'll want to do this action, which requires this, which requires this. But on the way to that, you can be like, oh, man, I can make that action easier now so that when I do it in four turns, it'll cost me less. But in order to do that, you need four silver. So the first thing you're doing is finding four silver. And it just, it really does a great job of making sure that every action, like you can step backwards to a short-term goal, to a short-term goal, to a short-term goal. Really clever game, that one. I really enjoy that. Uh, one thing, if I can, I want to circle back to something you mentioned a little while ago, which is saving mechanisms for later. You'd said this in the context of Robotopia, where you were playing uh, with a particular mechanic in an older version, and then you were able to pull that out and bring in later. And I just wanted to get your thoughts on what that looks like when you have a fun mechanic that's just the wrong fit for that particular game. Like, how do you make that sort of kill your darlings moment of taking that out and reassessing when it's the right time for a future game? Yeah, so the, the cartouche Robotopia split was the moment I learned that. And um, have you heard of the term scarcity mindset? No, I don't think so. So this is something I think about all the time. This is in general life, not board game design, but it applies to board game design. There's abundance mindset and scarcity mindset. Abundance mindset is, oh, there's infinite of these, I don't have to worry about them. Every time I go to the store, they always have shelves and shelves and shelves full of toilet paper. I don't have to hoard toilet paper. I can just go to the store and buy toilet paper as I need it. That's abundance mindset. And abundance mindset is relaxed and it is open and it is not panicked. Scarcity mindset is hey, there is a world shortage of toilet paper. If you don't go to the store right now and get toilet paper, you won't have it. And your body locks up and freezes and goes into like focused mode. I need to go to the store and buy as much toilet paper as I can afford in store because I might never see it again. So that's abundance mindset versus scarcity mindset. It applies to all types of levels of life. If you're trying to sell something to someone, you desperately want to get them into scarcity mindset. Which is fear of missing out, FOMO. Yeah, exactly. So every ad is, hey, it's 20% off today, but tomorrow you're gonna have to pay more. Hey, this is a limited time offer. Hey, we only have seven of these left. You need to buy one right now. Kickstarter as a business model is entirely built off scarcity mindset. Mm -hmm. It says, if you don't pledge to this project right now, you are missing out. You need to give us your money right now so that you can have this game. Or in fact, if you don't pledge, this game might not happen. Like realistically, Robotopia might not happen. <laughs> Um, because we, we didn't have the money to make it. And so Kickstarter slash all sales rely on scarcity mindset. Scarcity mindset is really dangerous in relationships when you're like, you're going out with your friends instead of spending time with me right now. I need you, I need you here right now. People who are feeling secure and comfortable in a relationship are in abundance mindset where it's like, yeah, of course you can go out. Like I will see you not only tomorrow and the next day, but every day for the rest of our lives. 
that's a comfortable relationship. And I'm not saying, you know, therefore never see your partner, but in terms of like recognizing when you're in scarcity mindset or abundance mindset is really useful. In terms of uh, relationships as well, you can also get into the scarcity mindset of like, if I'm not with this person, what do I have? I will never find anyone else ever again. <laughs> and as we all know, whoever cares the least about a relationship has the most power in that relationship. And it <laughs> yeah. only exacerbates as time goes on. Stay out of toxic relationships. Yeah. <laughs> and honestly, I think being aware of scarcity mindset is so valuable. When you have that anxiety or panic, sit down and be like, firstly, am I in scarcity mindset? Secondly, should I be? Because sometimes you should be, you know, if it's um, if it's the last time you're going to see your friend before they get shipped off to war. Yeah, you should <laughs> go and try to spend time with them. But whenever possible, try to be an abundance mindset in your life. It's really healthy and valuable. So Knights of Atlantis had become Coral Kingdoms and it was this great worker placement system which was sort of like a, a early version of what became robotopia it had a lot of the clearing workers and getting goods from workers and all that kind of stuff but the the nuance wasn't there and then it had this obviously the polyomino set i don't remember if jeff talked about this in his episode but i hired jeff to be a dev for coral kingdoms because i was like look i've been beating my head against the wall on this for like a year now i don't know how to make this game better he wanted to get into dev and now he's a, a full-time dev so it was a mutually beneficial relationship um so he took it and I was like, he was like, okay, cool. Anything that you definitely want me to save or cut? And I was like, just make sure you keep that worker placement mechanism in there because that's really good. And he was like, okay. To his credit, he really tried. He really worked on that. But then a few weeks later, I'd been working on a different game that also used that mechanism. And I, I said to him, I was like, you can, you can cut that from this game if it doesn't fit in this game. <laughs> like, <laughs> that was my moment of like, oh, just because a thing works in a game, A, doesn't mean it has to be in that game because it'll never work anywhere else. That's scarcity mindset. Like, it has to go here. This is the only place it can go. And secondly, let's say it never goes anywhere again. You thought of that mechanism, you can think of others. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's not the only good mechanism or the only interesting mechanism you'll ever think of. And because you tend to get better at stuff over time, you'll probably think of better ones in the future. So that game was really the key for me being like, okay, look, take that out. And now whenever I like a mechanism, I just put it in my little mechanism folder. I don't try to force it into a spot that's not fitting. Yeah, that's huge to be able to have that later because then some other time you're going to hit a design problem and be like, this mechanic isn't working. You can look back through your notes and be like, ooh, you know what would work? <laughs> yeah. When I played uh, Thebes for the first time, I just fell absolutely in love with that mechanism. It was my favorite mechanism. People, it's a time track mechanic. Same thing as uh, in Patchwork. Takedo as well, right? It's different in a few ways. I'll, I'll just explain because it's a great mechanism. So basically, time tracks can be done in a few different ways. But the way that it's in, in Thebes specifically is you do anything you want. You point to a spot on the board and you're like, I want to go here. And so you move yourself to that space and then take that action. The action will have a number associated with it and you'll count up the number of spaces between you and add those together. So if it's say two spaces away and the action costs you two, then you go one, two spaces, that's two time, and then two for the action, four time total. So then you move ahead on the time track and once you are the last person on the time track, then you get your next turn. So in Thebes, the reason why it's done so well is because you want to be efficient. You want to like make stops along your route um, as opposed to just like sprinting back and forth, zigzagging throughout the map. And also because in Thebes, you have such dramatic number differences. The numbers range from one for a turn to 16, or maybe even higher than that, if you have to actually move to get there. It could probably be like 20 or 
even higher maybe so if someone's else doing a bunch of like two actions then they can be like oh you did a 20 action thank you for giving me 10 turns in a row <laughs> right but sometimes you need to take off huge swaths of time to do the powerful actions yeah absolutely. so like the variance is just super interesting like knowing your moment to like give someone else control of the board so it's, it's very similar to Takedo then because in Takedo sometimes you like look I know it's going to give you like five actions in a row, but I got to get that spot. Yes, there are definitely similarities in it. Sorry, I wasn't trying to say like it's completely different, but like in the ways that it is different, I think it is it is significant. But like when I played that, I was in love with the mechanic. I tried to find every game I possibly could that used that mechanic, and I couldn't find any that used it in the way that I liked Thebes using it. Like in, in Patchwork, it's you know a glorified way of just balancing a cost, right? Like if you take three turns in a row in patchwork that's like shocking that almost never happens um versus in thebes there's all sorts of different cadences to to the turns and everything i think it's brilliantly done in patchwork i think it's perfect for patchwork if you went into patchwork looking for thebes you'd be disappointed but if you're playing patchwork for itself it, i think it's amazing right i think patchwork uses it well for what it's it's trying to use that mechanism for which you know goes into every mechanism can be used in different ways for different reasons and, and accomplish totally different things. Yeah. But you're right, yeah, it wasn't what I was looking for out of it. So I tried to design a game around it, and I didn't have much success, but I was like, okay, back pocket, someday that mechanism will be right, and in my newest iteration of Colossus, that's what I'm using, it seems like it's working pretty well. Oh, nice. Because I want to give the rhythm of, like, a bunch of small turns that like the players are taking that are like small movement costs versus the Colossus, which is like supposed to be big and slow. And I really want to get the feeling of like something that's slow. So the Colossus will take individual turns that are huge, but bigger impact. Right. It's funny. So the new game I'm working on that I just mentioned, I'll tell you the working title. It's Seeds of Destiny. Just so I don't have to keep vaguely referring to it. It's brand new. This is the one I was saying I've got no mechanisms for, just like some broad stroke ideas. I'm listening to you now talk about thieves. I'm like, oh, that would solve a problem I'm having in this game. <laughs> so you might see that cropping up there. Similar to what I was saying about like jotting down your own mechanisms, exactly that. Like when I see something cool in a game, I will mentally file it away. And then when I need to solve a problem, it just gives you more tools to, to draw from. This is one of the reasons why as designers, you should be playing a lot of games and not just playing them, but playing them analytically and being like, oh, this is how they did that. Have you played uh, Imperial Steam? No, I have not. I played it for the first time. I want to play it one more time and then I'm probably done with it because it's not for me. It's too, the economy is too tight. It feels punishing every time you do anything, but it has this one mechanism that I'm like, oh, I want to take that and make a whole game out of it. <laughs> <laughs> so what's the uh, thing? <laughs> uh, yeah, so I should, I should actually explain it, shouldn't I? Um, <laughs> so you have workers and it's very, very tight turn economy. On your turn, you can either use your workers or not use them. If you use them, obviously you get stuff and everything's a race. You're racing to buy new workers. You're racing to get spots on the board. You're racing to get technologies. Like you need to do everything on the first turn or you're screwed. It's that kind of tight economy is why I found it too stressful. If you don't use your worker, they level up. And next time they're worth two each instead of one. Mm. So if I build a new piece of rail track, let's say it costs me three, I can spend three workers on it. If I don't and I save those three workers, next turn they're worth six and I could build two pieces of track. If I don't, next turn they're worth three each. Oh, wow. I could build three pieces of track. It's just such a simple, clever mechanism. And it really works with like, oh, I, I need to build this track this turn. But if you get screwed out of it and you can't build it for some reason, then you're sort of like, well, okay, next turn I'm building double the track for the same price. I totally see what you're saying there, because that doesn't feel like the type of mechanism I want in a super long game where it's like, yeah, I'll just take off my turn. But if you had like, you know, a 20 minute game where it was like really light and it was 
almost like, like a, a, a light version of Raw or something. It was just like picking your moment to strike or something. Yeah, yeah. I want to put it in a heavy but less stressful game, I think. Mm. Yeah, okay. I've got some notes. I want to do basically, instead of just one type of worker, like you've got a bunch of different types of workers. And so you're like choosing which ones to level up and which ones not to. There's just something about the leveling up of them that's really compelling to me. That's cool. Yeah, similarly, I played Airship City, which I may have actually mentioned on the podcast before, where it's this game that has this really clever mechanism in it. There's these grid of tiles, and you have two ships, and you can sort of leapfrog your ships to take different actions on the board. It's worker movement, but you can use the two ships that you have to leapfrog each other. It's very simple, it's very clever, and they have like four different other economic boards associated with it, (laughs) and it could have been like a Ticket to Ride style game and done really well, I think. But because they have all that extra stuff, it's like, it just feels like this mechanism is kind of going to waste in this thing, which is mean to say, like, it's a, it's a fine production, it's a fine game. I just feel like th- there's a whole other game in there that had all this extra stuff around it. Yeah, I quite often want to take great mechanisms from mean games and put them into nice games. <laughs> what was that two-player worker placement game we played? Targi. Targi. Like, I loved that central mechanism. Mm. Uh, you're, you're placing people on basically Cartesian grid and, like, pinpointing the worker placement spot you want to use. Like, if we can bring Robotopia back and it does well enough, I would love to design, like, a sequel using the Targi mechanism because it, it feels very robotic. But Targi is mean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It is hard to do anything in that game. It just feels really punishing, and that's just not not my speed. I don't I don't like to, like, struggle to get a single piece of gold or whatever. I love you saying that because Targi and Robotopia are tied for my two favorite worker placements. So <laughs> definitely sounds like the Reese's Pieces chocolate and peanut butter situation. <laughs> yeah, I'm, like, I'm like, I could take that targeting mechanism, make a two to five player robot themed game. <laughs> it feels very robot to me, like, you know, arranging on a grid. Yeah, yeah. So now let's move on to the dev part of Robotopia. We talked about where it came from. We talked about how we got a lot to a lot of the mechanisms that we got to. I say we as if I helped in that process. I did not. <laughs> um, you, you, did, you did some end dev, didn't you? I did do some end. dev at, at the end there. I didn't help yeah. prior to to this part. <laughs> so prior to me doing any dev work at all, we had John Brigger come on and do some. What did that process look like? Yeah, so like I said, this was our biggest game that we'd ever done by far. Yeah. Too big. Too big to, to launch, it turned out. <laughs> and so for both Cartouche and Robotopia, we brought an external dev. Cartouche was interesting. I don't know if Jeff talked about this, but uh, when the devs came in for Cartouche, we had uh, Travis Chance and Mike Mihalsik, and they did a great job. But Travis Chance gave my favorite bit of feedback I've ever gotten on a game. Firstly, he said it, he said it didn't work. That's not the feedback. But uh, just for context, he was like, this doesn't work. He said, it's not a game. It's like got a lot of really cool mechanisms, but it's not a game. It's like you've just given someone a million dollars and said, build a car. And so, like, they've got all the resources they can do it, but it's not a game. It's just, like, a weird party task. I'm, I'm misquoting him, but it was, it was something along that line. It was such, such bizarre feedback. He was totally right. We went back and fixed it and made it into a very smooth, well-running game. Did you play the early versions of Cartouche? I, I, I lose track of which of the versions of, of it I played or not, but I feel like I would remember that, and I really wish I'd played that version now hearing that, that feedback. <laughs> That's so interesting. So that, that version of Cartouche, you got a hand of cards, and every card could be used uh, to get pieces or to place pieces. And if you didn't have the cards that you wanted, you could combine them so like two of a kind could be used or just two, any two could be used to do something. And so you end up like drawing big hands of cards and spending it on pieces and placing them, and then drawing a big hand of cards and spending it to place it on pieces. Ah. And the actual like placement was really cool and interesting, but the hand system was just chaos nonsense. <laughs> right. 
And so we, we went from that to just a, uh, a table draft. So you just take the piece that you wanted from the table and you take the gold card from the table. Because the cards in your hand, as well as being pieces, they were also goals. Everything was everything. And so it was like being given a million dollars and being like, go, do whatever you like. And at the end, maybe you'll win. <laughs> so that was the dev process for, for Cartouche. We ended up redesigning the game after that. So that was a massive, massive change. And Jeff was actually mostly did that redesign and it just came back so smooth that the second round of dev, they were like, oh, uh, maybe change this number from four to five. <laughs> like it, it was really from like, this game doesn't work to like, oh, this game is done. Robotopia was a much more typical dev process. So John Brieger, I'd, I'd known for years, he's my Twitter nemesis, and I knew that he dev'd this kind of Euro, like this sort of interesting, weird, big, heavy Euro. He did the dev for Cartographers, if you've played that, the Roll'em Right. Yeah, I haven't played it, but I did know. I, I was more interested after hearing him talk about uh, talk about the dev on that. Yeah. I'd be really curious to hear your thoughts on Cartographers, because I've been playing it a bunch lately, and it's, it's very good and not for me, so that's why I want to hear your take on it. So for Robotopia, he asked the same question as Jeff did when I asked him to dev Coral Kingdoms, which is like, okay, cool, like, any problem areas, anything you want me to keep? And I was basically like, look, I, I love it all, so uh, don't, don't keep anything on my behalf. <laughs> um, because, you know, if you ask me, I'll say, keep everything, it's perfect, don't change a thing. But there were two things I asked him to focus on. One was variant paths. So, you know, every, every game past a certain weight really needs alternate paths to victory. And in Robotopia, because everyone's trying to hit the same four guilds to win, you can't be like, well, what am I going to do? I'm going to focus on this. You have to hit those four guilds. Now, there's a few ways you can do it. You can... You know, there's multiple paths to each guild. But the thing I was looking for is uh, in Robotopia, you can do what I think of as a very um, generation light path, which is you're doing a lot of refreshing. Yeah. Or you can be like, I have all the generators and all the robots and I never have to refresh. And refreshing is, is a good action, but it really forces you down a particular path. Whereas having all the robots can be good but if you need a yellow robot and you're not going to generate them for like five more turns that can be a problem as well so the first thing i asked him to do is just make sure that those two paths were balanced and then the second thing was that there was a part of the game that no matter what i did no one ever understood the explanation <laughs> which is a bad sign and it wasn't a problem past the first game after the first game everyone was like oh i completely see how that worked and the second time they played literally zero issue with it whatsoever but the teach in the first game was really rough. Do you remember the old version of how you won? Uh, no, I don't. There's four guilds in the game, one in each of the four quadrants, basically. You start from one, and in the old version, you had to basically build a path to an adjacent guild and then influence that guild, then build a path to an adjacent guild and then influence that guild, then build a path to an adjacent guild and then influence that guild. And so at the end of the game, you would build three paths and influence three guilds. But influencing a guild requiring you to build a path just didn't make sense. <laughs> like almost everything in the game has something intuitive to it. Like you're crushing a robot into a cube. That's why when you destroy a robot, you get a cube. The conveyor belt moves because it's a conveyor belt. Like everything is as much as I could tied to something physical. This was purely mechanical. So yeah, the two things I asked for was look at the multiple paths. And if you can fix this, please do, because I don't know how to. The change he made to the guilds was really clever. When you influence a guild first, you kind of have to earn their trust, then you have to cash it in, basically. The way he did it was you would get a token and then place the token. Get a token, place a token. And in the world of the game, it still doesn't really make sense, I guess, but as a player, you were like, oh, I want to have a token on that. Well, first I have to get the token, then I have to place it on there. So that was this fix there. For the variants, he actually made a huge change, which I, as a designer, was... I, I could feel it in my gut. I was like, no, don't change this! Like, that, that resistance, that, like tightening of the gut 
but also I trust John and I was, you know, paying him to dev this. So I was like, cool. Like if, if you think this is the way you're going to do it. And it was absolutely the right move. Every time you refresh, you move the master robot and crush a bunch of robots into cubes. In the version that he got, whenever you place the master robot, you would activate the space it was on. Hmm. John's point was that crushing robots into cubes is already the most powerful thing you do in the game. Like one space is get a cube. Moving the master robot could get you up to like six cubes. It was a very powerful move. And so he was like, hey, the game will go faster, be easier to teach, run smoother, and be more balanced if we just get rid of that action. The reason I fought to keep this, and I might have mentioned this on a, I mentioned the design diary in event. The reason this was in there was because I really intensely dislike a player turn where you have to make a choice that doesn't mean anything. So when you place the master robot, you have to choose one of four spots for it to go on. If there's no robots in that area, you're not crushing anything with the cubes. You still have to choose one of them to go to. Now it does block it from other players, but the master robot moves so fast that the blocking is never a huge thing. Like it's not a hugely significant choice. And so that that's why I added the action in. So John taking that out, I resisted in my gut because I was like, but then you'll have to make a choice that doesn't matter. And the truth is like, yes, maybe twice in a game, a player will have to make this choice that doesn't matter, but it means that you've timed things wrong. <laughs> like making this choice that doesn't matter is sort of a punishment. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I wouldn't intentionally go into design this, but it's sort of like, yeah, you have to make this choice that doesn't matter because you're not playing optimally. Right, yeah, that makes sense. It's interesting because when you're talking about the different strategies being viable, that's one thing that every time I've shown it to people, that's something every single person has commented on is how, you know, just naturally over the course of play, some people build lots of generators. I find often it's people who come from other worker placement games for the first time. They'll focus yeah. on it because typically getting more workers is just a huge net positive. If you have an extra worker in Agricola, it's a totally different ballpark. Whereas in Robotopia, they can definitely be useful. Definitely. You need to have spare robots to use for objectives. You can use them for all sorts of different things and just not having to take refresh turns can give you a lot of control over the tempo of your play. The first time the artist, Anthony Clark, played, he did not want to refresh. He did <laughs> everything he could to not refresh. So there's a space in the game that just gets new robots without refreshing. He used that space like every third turn because he just did not want to refresh. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes you do that, right? Like I had a game where I didn't have the guild power that lets you do that, but I did use that space constantly. But I was also able to like farm action cards that turn your excess workers into cubes. And I had a whole bunch of generators going and yeah. The, yeah. <laughs> um, but similarly, like if you just have like one or two generators and they're good robots, you can do a lot with that if there's like, especially the higher player count game when the board is just always filled with robots, always refreshing, like because refreshing can get you, like you said, up to six cubes in, in some cases. And like a good action would be getting three cubes. That'd be a very good action that you could yeah, take. That's a, that's a great turn you've just had. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, I think partially to simplify the game, and as I'm sure we've beat this drum a bunch, if you can cut a rule, cut a rule. Yeah. But also I think he was finding that the low generator strategy was a little bit too powerful. So he, uh, and then he obviously added a solo mode, but you did a whole episode with him about that. So Yeah. I've talked with John about the designer-dev relationship. Do you want to go into what that looks like for you? Particularly because you're not only the designer, you're also the publisher. Normally there's sort of like a, a step of separation between there. Yeah, I, I do I do try to take off my designer hat and put on my publisher hat. Um, how successful I am, I don't know. Maybe John has thoughts on that. But um, <laughs> I do... I mean, ultimately, I just want to make the game good. And that's both as a designer and as a publisher. So working with the dev, that line doesn't blur too much. Uh, sometimes in the dev process, there's moments where you're like, look, the game would be very slightly better 
if we completely rewrote an entire chunk of it. But if you find that too late in the process, it's often just not worth doing. So that, that's a time when, as a designer, I might be like, oh, stupid publisher wouldn't let me do that. <laughs> as a publisher, I'm like, we, got, we can't, you know, we, we were about to go to print. We can't delay the entire print for six months in order to make it 1% better. <laughs> do you happen to have an example of that handy? Uh, yeah, I can give you one from Robotopia, actually. So as a publisher, I'm genuinely like, Peter, shut up. No one cares about this. <laughs> as a designer, I'm like, but it would be 0.01% more clean. <laughs> At the start of the game, everyone draws basically choice of starting cards. The same as in Zulkin, like just here's the resources that you start with, here's the workers that you start with, and which guild you start on. And I wanted this to be a choice because... If you look at the board, the biggest influence for this game, I, I can't remember if I mentioned, is Istanbul. Istanbul is tied with Feast Road, my favorite game of all time. And this game, every time I was not sure what to do, I would turn to Istanbul. Istanbul's amazing. I just played it with AJ yesterday. I love that game. And that game had more influence on this than anything else, right down to not having victory points. So in Istanbul, the first thing I do is I look at the layout of tiles and I start plotting my, my course. This is why Robotopia has randomized tiles. So you randomize the tiles and then maybe one guild works better with these tiles than another. Every time you mine, you get a new worker, no matter how many times you mine is out. So if there's a mining place in every quadrant, that's a better guild power. So I wanted everyone to have a choice of which guild power to start with. So you start with a hand of starting cards you choose one, you get those resources, you go to that guild, and then the starting cards leave the game never to be seen again. And as a designer, this drives me nuts. <laughs> I hate that. I actively think it's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I like to reuse every component as many times as I like, sometimes to my detriment. Everything else in Robotopia has multiple uses. The goals in yellow, once you collect it, it becomes a battery. The, the goals in red and green shift between each other and they're constantly rotating between them. The goals in the blue quadrant and the starting cards, that's all that they do. And I think I might have been playing with you, AJ, like very late in the, in the development cycle when I was suddenly like, oh, the goals in the blue area and the cards that you start with could have been the same. Mm. <laughs> that could have been the same thing. And it would have just integrated the mechanics and the components very slightly more closer together <laughs> in a way that makes my heart sing. <laughs> I realized this after all the board art was done, after every card was mocked up, all the starting cards, all the blue area goal cards, everything. So to change it at that point, and, and after the dev was done, after John had signed off on the dev, after cold playtesting had been done, after the rulebook had gone through all the drafts, like I worked that out right at the end of the process. So to rebuild that <laughs> <laughs> would have been the stupidest thing. So as a publisher, I had to be like, obviously not like there's no <laughs> world in which that makes any sense as a designer like you better believe i wanted to <laughs> that's so interesting yeah it's purely aesthetic too like it doesn't actually make the game quote unquote better it just makes it more pleasing to my system's brain <laughs> <laughs> using every part of the buffalo is kind of the dream in board games right the peak oh elegance God, i love it <laughs> I love it so much. I think Robotopia really does it. This is tying into what you were saying very nicely earlier. It's like everything in Robotopia connects into everything else, and I'm really proud of that. And so these two vestigial things that don't, and I could have combined them, yeah. 
it's hard to get into before you played the game, but the more you played the game, the more you realize just how much all the systems feed off of each other. And by the way, we talked about combos a little while ago. That's how you get good combos, when things build on top of each other, because without having to teach anyone any extra rules, when we mentioned the action cards before, you know, they have triggers. A good example is there's a red robot, and when it goes onto a space, it basically touches two spaces, it'll get the benefits of both. There's an action card that lets you take both of those three times. Well, there's a guild power that whenever you take a certain action, you get a cube. And so if you go there, you'll get the two triggers, you play the action card, you get three triggers, and every single one of those triggers triggers the guild power card. You can get so <laughs> many cubes. It's amazing. It feels so good. <laughs> the downside to this is that the more stuff's tied in together, and this is sort of what I was saying earlier, you have to teach everything before you can do anything. So one of the reasons why in Robotopia and Dracula's Feast, actually, one of the reasons why you can't start playing the game until you've learned everything is because everything does affect everything else. In Dracula's Feast, you need to know that when I ask AJ to dance, if I do it in a certain way, that might trigger John's victory. You want to know that before your first turn, so you need to teach every part of the game before you can even start playing. <laughs> that's the, the trade-off, that's the cost. In Seeds of Destiny, I'm actively trying to go in the other direction, so one of the things you do in this game is you can go to a university and get a professor who's going to teach you stuff, and when you go to the university, that's the first time you see which professors are available at all. And the professor that you choose has an entire action board that is its own like little mini-game, mm. and so this is all purely theory craft at the moment this might not end up in the game if the game ever gets made at all but the idea behind that is when you're teaching it's like yeah there's a university you can learn stuff that's all you can teach during the explanation it's not until someone goes there and starts looking at stuff that you're like oh you've gone there okay let's open that part of the rule book and, and like even worry about how that works at all i love that kind of stuff we talked a lot about just how focused i am in particular I, we, we both are but especially me from my background in terms of how much we care about on-ramping new players and in terms of like making the teach smooth i just adore games that walk you through really smoothly and easily. Like, I love Robotopia, and I think that it's not the hardest game to teach, but the teach for that one could be smoother if some of the things were different. I mean, again, everything's super tightly integrated. Well, it, it's the trade-off. Yeah, um, exactly. And, and part of it, too, is, is tactics versus strategy. So yeah. I love a strategic game. Mm -hmm. Actually, we had this conversation yesterday as well. We've been hanging out lately. <laughs> you showed me Lost Cities. And Lost Cities is an old Knizia game from 1999. It's ancient. In board games time, that's like <laughs> Casablanca. In that, there's these five rows, one of each color. You get a big hand of cards that are like numbered two through ten in each of the different colors. And on your turn, you can either discard a card or you can play it to a color. Once you've played to a color, you've committed to that expedition and you've got minus 20 points for that color plus whatever you play. So if I play a two on red, I'm at minus 18 points because you know nothing's worth anything until you play there. And then I can only play higher than two on there. So I can play the three, play the four, play the five, etc. And a key thing is that when you play, you can either play onto one of these expeditions or discard onto one of these expeditions. And that's what makes it available for either player to draw it. At the end of your turn, you draw either from the deck or from one of the discard piles. So for my first turn, I discard a red 10, then AJ is going to be like, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll take that. Why would I not take that? That seems great. Because then on my turn, that's half of the expedition paid off already and so it's a really cool game the way that aj described it was it's a game where you never want to do anything <laughs> because if i discard a card then you're like oh great i happen to be working towards red that's great for me 
if I play a card, then you'll be like, oh, you've just locked yourself out of every number lower than that, and I can safely discard them. And you've committed to minus 20 points. <laughs> so, like, you, you never want to do anything. And it's it's a really clever design. I discovered it's got an iOS app, so I've been playing it on that since we played yesterday. Oh, it's so funny, because I, I thought you said that's not your type of game, but you've been playing it since then? And it's not my type of game at all. I, I played it three times, and I was like, oh, yeah, this really isn't my type of game. <laughs> it's a great design. It's not me dissing the design, but it's very tactical. Yeah. And I do not enjoy a very tactical game. I like a very strategic game. And so Istanbul, aside from the cards that you draw and possibly like what's what you can sell at the market, is completely deterministic. It's the same, I'd say it's roughly the same level of deterministic as Robotopia. Again, this is the main influence. At the start of Istanbul, I'm generally like, okay, I'm going to get this, 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 this. Those will be my five gems. Mm-hmm. And maybe over the course of the game, one or two of those will change. But that's still way up the strategic end. Whereas something like Lost Cities you can't do that like you get your starting hand and uh, maybe you drew 10 9 8 7 6 5 4 in red in which case great you can be like i'm probably gonna go for red this game (laughs) but until you see what your opponent plays discards or what you draw you just can't make any choices and this is not me dissing the game i think it's a really well designed game i'm very glad it exists i find that so frustrating that it's not a game for me yeah and for me, I don't like chess or, or go to those types of games because I don't want to have the ability and therefore feel the obligation to plan out 162 contingency plans and like all that sort of stuff. Right. So to me, I like to have it tighter where it's like, I need to make the best move this turn. I'm heavy on the tactical end, very low on the strategic. Yeah, I, I've noticed this from the games that you keep showing me. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, that was not fun for me. Like, <laughs> I, I'm glad that you showed me the games. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, at the end of it, I'm often like, oh, I can, I can see why you like that. It's a very good game. <laughs> that is just not for me at all. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, when we're coming from opposite ends of the spectrum, there's, just, there's uh, only so yeah, much you can it's, do, It's right? going to happen. <laughs> so why do you like Robotopia then? I love the worker placement aspect of it. I love the tension that it has in so many different directions. In worker placement games, my biggest pet peeves are, well, there's the spot that I really need to go to, and then a bunch of other spots that I could go to that aren't good, (laughs) and then someone goes there and they take it, and it's like, well, now I have to pick between eight bad choices. That feels awful, and it's not a fun decision to make. And in Robotopia, Usually it's it's funny because for me, that means that there's a quote in screenwriting. If you have a third act problem, you have a first act problem. How does that apply here? What what do you mean by that? If there's one spot that you need and everything else is crap, that means that two turns ago, you didn't set yourself up to have multiple paths. You know, I'm not the best at worker placements. You know, that's frankly probably the case. But that is a thing that I experience a lot in worker placements and a thing that I do not like in them. I played a six player Caverna the other day. Oh, yeah? And I was last in turn order, it was so infuriating. So I sat there and I was like, okay, here's my first option, here's my second option, here's my third option, here's my fourth option. (laughs) And then there's two spots that let you go to a place that someone else has already taken. With six players, you need that. Yeah, it got down to my last option. I had to pay extra to use the space that lets me take something that someone else has already taken. Um, (laughs) Because every single one of my first five options was taken. (laughs) That's so funny, because like most people in games are like, that's the spot that I want, locked it in. And then someone goes in like, ooh, time to start planning my turn. <laughs> oh my god, no, you can't you can't play six-player Caverna like that. <laughs> so in Robotopia, I have that. I feel like I do have enough options that I can plan contingencies, even if there's a spot I really need. 
because it's like not only are there different positions for each worker type, but there's different ways of accomplishing objectives. Like even if you totally hose me out of an objective that I'm going for, I can pivot in, in Robotopia. It's not super efficient to pivot, but like you always have that option. There's multiple avenues to success like we were talking about earlier. When I'm playing Robotopia, that's one of the few worker placements where I am able to plan out contingencies and and do those sorts of things. Because it's so open. Yeah, exactly. Gotcha. And it also just feels super fun to like upgrade your workers and like you do this clever thing where almost all of the starting ones start off with one yellow robot. And like there's there's not all of them, but a lot of them do I noticed. And when you get a new generator to generate more robots, it's the yellow one that you start with. You can't ever skip a step. You always at least have to start with one. You can upgrade it immediately, potentially. But short-term goals. <laughs> all about them short-term goals. Right. But it's like the the really cool fun things are playing the two and three times workers and gain lots of benefits. But you have just enough of the single ones that it's like, oh, I'm going to play this here, but it, it doesn't feel super good. And it's not enough that it's like, oh, it doesn't feel good to place them. It's just enough to give context to how powerful the other workers are. Giving motivation to upgrade. Yeah. But the thing is, too, when you upgrade them, it's like, okay, you've got this powerful worker. But if you place it in the corner of three hexes, activating three spots... Do you really want all three actions? And so it's this efficiency puzzle of like, my short-term goals are like, how do I use this worker to get all three actions? When I place a level three worker, it only gets me two of my three actions. I'm like, how did I misplan this that I didn't get max efficiency? Yeah. Which is super satisfying. Efficiency is absolutely what drives me as a player. So it sounds like, and let me if I've interpreted this right, that you play Robotopia tactically because it allows you to do that. You don't have to play strategically. Like you obviously have like a goal in mind, but you're able to play pretty tactically. Yes. Interesting. This is just compliment Peter's game. I, <laughs> I never thought about that. You're absolutely right. Because it, it's fairly open. You don't have to be strategy man to enjoy this relatively strategic game you can play it tactically and still have a good shot and possibly even do better than someone like who, who over strategized and got locked out of a path there's this conveyor belt of tiles and each tile has on it a different list of resources maybe it's three of a colored cube or a worker plus a cube or whatever and the conveyor belt's used for a lot of different things in this game going back to talking about using every part of the buffalo right there's abilities that use it and there's goals that use it um, and the idea is based off of the position of them some of them will be used to pay for costs. Some of them could be used to gain a benefit if you have a special ability, etc., etc. And so because it's always shifting, that means that it's difficult to form a strategy around an exact cost for the conveyor belt. So either you can you know, time it really well, or you can plan and say, listen, I can build towards the next time it shifts, have those resources ready, knowing someone's going to shift it, and then that's the moment that you hit the button and get it. Those are the types of really interesting little trade-offs you have. That's one thing that John really leaned into. He, uh, he he loves the using every. I don't know if he likes the metaphor, but he likes the idea of using every part of the buffalo. And he was like, "This conveyor belt is great. I want to use it more." So one of the guilds is now just conveyor belt powers. The solo mode really heavily uses the conveyor belt. That was John just being like, "This is the least used thing in the game. Let's lean into that and use it as much as possible." And that's really important. I think emphasizing the things that your game does well is so key. I can't tell you how many prototypes I've played where it's like, I'll play it and there's a whole bunch of stuff going on. And it's like, okay, all this stuff, you could cut all this and no one would miss it. This one thing here is amazing and everyone loves it. And every time you pull it out, people give you compliments on the game because of this one thing. Just do the one thing. You do the one thing so well and make sure that everything in the game focuses and emphasizes that really cool thing you do. 
we talk so much, so I can never remember what we've said on the podcast. Now. We've gotten to that point in the podcast now. I'm like, did we talk about this? I don't know. <laughs> no one ever made a successful game by doing nothing wrong. There's a tendency, especially among amateur designers, I've found, to be like, ah, Eric Lang released a bad game. Bet he's kicking himself. <laughs> glad I'm not him. And not literally glad I'm not him, but it's sort of this idea that like, ah, you made a mistake. You're no longer amazing. I wouldn't have made that mistake. Therefore, I'm a very good designer. <laughs> And it doesn't matter the bad stuff that you do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, in terms of design, don't be a crappy person. You can have 10 flops and then design Azul and like you're doing better than someone who never had any of those flops. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's the same in games, weirdly. Like, again, I, and I, I was worse with this than anyone. Like as an amateur designer, I was like, ah, this amazing game that I love that's really well selling has a mistake. I wouldn't have done that. And so you spend all your time trying to smooth out your mistakes. I'm not saying lean into your mistakes, but the mistakes don't matter as much as the good stuff. So what you were saying, like lean into the good stuff. If the good stuff's great, no one cares about the mistakes. <laughs> yes. And this is a design lesson I learned from Nemesis really firmly recently. I've talked about Nemesis before on the podcast. Big, heavy, beefy game, lots of rules, very messy. And I have always said I'll be first in line for the second edition of that game. The first edition is just very messy and too much, I think, in a lot of ways. But it does have a ton of fun in that game. Like, it does a lot of great things that aren't done very often. And I was playing it the other day, and it was almost turn one. You have a parasite. Okay, so I need to get this thing out before it, like, chest bursts me. It's basically alien. So immediately I was like, my entire focus is on getting to the place that removes the parasite. So I sprinted across the map. I got there. The turn before I was able to remove the parasite, oh, the if you have a parasite card, you immediately explode came up. And I was out of the game. <laughs> that game could be three or four hours. Should have played better, AJ. Should have played better. <laughs> yeah. We've been playing for like half an hour, and there was literally nothing I could have done to stop that. And you might say, oh, that's a mistake. And you know what? Uh, we mentioned uh, Dead of Winter before. I was playing with a friend, and turn one, the friend walked out the door, rolled the die, died. Yeah. And then used their second character, exact same thing happened. So it's a 5% chance each time, I think. So I don't know what the odds are of rolling it twice in a row, but very, very low. And the person was immediately like, this game is bad. This is a bad game. This is a stupid right. That thing should not they, ever they happen. They had a bad experience, yeah. Yeah. You can say, like, one in every, whatever, thousand times someone starts off the game, their turn one is going to be both their characters die, and that's going to not feel very good. And you can, like, focus all your energy on complaining about that one thing. Or you can say, what are the 101 things that Dead of Winter did really, really well? <laughs> My new LA gaming group is uh, Into Heavy Games. That's the one I played Caverna mm -hmm. with. And their favorite game, I would say, like, as a group, is Age of Steam by Martin Wallace. Have you ever played it? I have not, no. I played it for the first time the other day. It's brilliant. Back in 2009, it was number 12 on BGG because there were a few games in 2009. Now it's like 250 or something like that. It's very mean. It's got one of the weirdest things. In the first few turns of the game, you can go bankrupt and get eliminated from the game. After that, that really can't happen. <laughs> it's only a thing that can happen in the, first few in the first few turns. So you have to nail those first few turns. And then after that, you're competing to win, but you can't get eliminated. And I was just looking at this, and there's, there's a famous uh, Splutter Spellin quote, the guys who did um, Food Chain Magnate. Yeah, yeah. If you can't lose on the first turn of the game, what's the point of the first turn of the game? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I've just been, I've been thinking so much about it, because it's, it's, 
it's such a good game. I really enjoyed it. I see why, why the group loves it so much. Um, I'll, I'll probably play it many more times because it's, it's their favorite game. It's not a game that I would buy, but it's a game that I would happily play every time it comes out. Yeah, it, just, it does this thing. And as a result, there are stakes. Like, <laughs> you really care about your first few turns. It's like the opposite of a point salad Euro, where you're like, oh, I'll just do this until I find a thing. In this one, you have to be good on your first turn or you will lose the game on your second turn. It's such an interesting, interesting world. Yeah, and that flies in the face of what we talked about in the past. But again, like, it's not saying like, and we're not even necessarily saying that's a flaw, right? Like for many people who play those games, that is a feature, not a bug. That many of their player base agree with that sentiment of if you can't. And it's an older game too. You you got to judge everything within its context, and and you know there's a million different um, disclaimers and, and things like that. Like yeah. there's no such thing as as a rule that always applies. It's just always about trade-offs. That's why I was saying yeah. like everything integrating and it being very strategic has the trade-off of it's got a long explanation a more tactical game where you can be like oh i didn't know this was here halfway through oh, i would have done things differently like sure but you didn't have to sit through another 15 minutes of explanation when someone says oh if i'd known that i would have played differently six hours into twat imperium that can feel bad <laughs> if y yes and no it just means like oh cool so you'll play again and, and do it right <laughs> That's what I was saying with uh, Imperial Steam. Again, the sa same group. You can tell the theme that, of stuff that they like. I will play it again because I'm pretty sure there's a strategy that no one at the table executed that would be really interesting to try. And then past that, it's not a game for me, but it's a very well-designed game. Right, right, fair. I didn't finish my thought earlier. We played Blitzkrieg and we played Lost Cities. And both of those are, okay, you finished your turn? Cool. Now draw some stuff and see what you've got available for next turn. And that's what drives me mad. Like, <laughs> not even being able to start, like, I guess you can roughly start, but, like, not being able to be like, okay, here's what I'm going to do this game until you draw that hand. That's what's not for me. Hmm. It's interesting. Have you played Castles of Burgundy? Yes, I had a bad experience with that because I played it with a couple who'd played it 370 times. Oh. <laughs> they were long distance for a long while and they would play it like four or five times a night long distance. Gotcha. And so I had a bad experience. <laughs> it's sort of, sort of like when you taught me Secure Arms. Like yeah. getting crushed in a game while being taught the game is just not a super interesting experience for me. Yeah, and like uh, the first time you taught me Istanbul, you were like, I intentionally went really inefficiently and you won the game when I had done, like, one victory point worth of things. <laughs> yeah. Yesterday's game was much closer. Um, yeah. That's good. You played well. You completely disrupted my plan at one point. I had to, I had to scramble to, to work out a new one. You went to the market spot, and I just wasn't expecting it. I guess I quote-unquote went easy on you because I didn't sit down and work out a bunch of contingency plans. I just made a plan. I was like, I'll play it tactically from here because I've played this game enough that I can do that. That's a game I've played probably 300 times. And so I didn't sit down and math it out. But because I was playing Castle Burgundy with a couple who wanted to beat each other, they did sit down and <laughs> math it all out. So I just got crushed. <laughs> The reason why I brought up Castle Burgundy was just to get your thoughts on that system, because that's a system where, you know, it's dice placement, you have to roll your dice and then see what you can do with them. And see, for me, a lot of the heavier Euros aren't for me because they do require at least incredibly highly incentivized long-term strategic contingency plants, which is just not fun for me at all. And in this one... I love it. Uh, you're a bit more limited in it. Furthermore, the way that I see the dice system in that is they give you a bit of focus because it's not too hard to manipulate the dice if you really need something. Right. But what it does is it says, instead of having a hundred options on your turn, let's let's say these are the heavily suggested options. If there's something that you really need, then work off of that, which I think is a brilliant system for getting newer players into it. Yeah, no, I, I think it does that really well. I think it's a good game. Um, 
It's a little point salad-y and I had a bad experience my first time, so I haven't played it again, but I, I will happily. Like, I'm not anti the game or anything like that. Are there any design lessons that Rotopia taught you that stuck with you that we haven't mentioned so far? Oh my goodness, so many. Um, <laughs> so until the action cards came in, that game was 100% deterministic. And in fact, if you look at it now, you'll, you'll see like from the startboard layout, the only randomness in the game at all is those action cards. If I'd gotten that feedback even six months earlier about like, hey, it needs these spikes, I would have busted a gut putting in some kind of deterministic spikes, which sort of defeats the point of spikes in a sense. And so, yeah, letting letting go of like a design goal when the game will be better without it was a really valuable lesson for me to learn in that. Like the action cards, I think, really make the game pop. I think they really uh, accentuate the good parts of the game. And the randomness, I've never had anyone be like, oh, this game isn't quite deterministic enough for me. <laughs> but I could absolutely imagine myself like holding onto that at the expense of the game being as good as it is. Right. It's, it's like you're, you're trying to not just stick to a design ethos because that was your initial vision. You're, you're trying to be adaptable to what the game wants to be, right? Yeah. Rather than being like, here's a set of rules and the game will follow these rules, which for the most part it did. Like it has a randomized board. It has no victory points. It has like a few things that I sat down at the start and wanted to do. Rather than that saying, okay, I've got this fun central mechanism. What can I do to draw that out? And those, those starting goals were really good because like I said, I needed to make a minimum viable prototype. Doing that without any kind of guidelines, I would have just been lost. Yeah. Um, you need some restrictions. Yeah, yeah. Those restrictions focused me. They, they made me be like, okay, well, if I'm doing this, then what? Oh, I'm doing this, then what? Oh, well, then I have to do this, then what? And it got the game. And I could have held onto those too tight and crushed the game in the process. Instead being like, okay, well, the real goal here is doing whatever makes these mechanisms fun. And doing that was what made those central mechanisms pop. The other thing is, is one that I've really struggled with consistently, which is when the central mechanism is fun, how do you work out what's wrong with the game? It's very much a first world problem. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, what's the term? Champagne problems. But um, that one's interesting because I think the trick to that is just getting it in front of the same group over and over again. Because if you're playing with new players all the time, then the feedback is always like, the central mechanism is really fun. And you're like, thank you. That's very nice. <laughs> Compliment accepted. I need to move past that and work out what is wrong with the game. Yeah, this is a difficult piece of advice to give to designers because so many people are very limited in who they get to play test with. But it's very useful to have a different group of people from time to time and to have a core group that you can have played again and again to be able to see the changes that get made. The way that I work is I have a core group, the Toronto crew, I don't know, AJ. I play my games to death with them and then go to a convention and play it with a bunch of strangers. And so I think of it as, as like uh, polishing and exploding. <laughs> <laughs> you polish it and then you take it to a con and people who... Because, you know, there's a downside to playing the same group over and over again, which is that they don't notice the problems because they're familiar with them or they, they don't come at it from a fresh angle. And especially going to a con and cold playtesting a bunch is so valuable. This is another game where cold playtesting revolutionized this game. The Master Robot used to just go from quadrant to quadrant. And I cold playtested it with a group of people who don't play heavy games. 
So I felt so sorry for them, but I was also like, oh, this is going to be juicy. And sure enough, they got the instruction of like, oh, you put robots on the spaces to activate them. Oh, we've got a master robot. Well, we'll put him on a space. And I was sitting there with my notepad being like, oh, of course, he's a robot. He goes on a space. <laughs> of course, it's a robot. It goes on a space. It's a robot. Robots go on spaces. And just like <laughs> made the game so much better, fixed the other problems that I was having incidentally, like such an improvement. So yeah, having, having that cycle of like the same group as much as you can and then new groups, ideally when the world opens up at conventions as much as you can <laughs> is really valuable. Any other design lessons that you wanted to touch on? This is not really a design lesson, but uh, I happened to be staying with Alex Cutler, who I mentioned earlier. And so he's also a game designer, and this is before he had a kid. So I stayed with him for a few months and was able to get that game to the table two or three times a week. And that period of like, I, th I think it was like a manic period, frankly, of just like hyper development. I found really useful for Robotopia because you know what it is? It's abundance mentality. It's exactly what I was talking about <laughs> earlier. When I only get to play test once a week, once every two weeks, I'm like, well, I got to make it, you know, as good as I can for the play test, which you should, you should respect your play test at times. It's something I've said a lot, but when it's with like a friend who you're staying with, I'm not saying I don't respect Alex's time, <laughs> but I didn't have to be quite as precious about it. I was able to just throw all kinds of stuff at the wall. I was able to be like, okay, let's see what happens if everyone has a player power. Oh, that wasn't fun, but it was interesting for this reason. What happens if this? Oh, it breaks, but it was interesting for this reason. So there was a period of, I think like 10 full redesigns within a three week period wow. where the game just went by leaps and bounds. And so with agricultists, actually, um, between our last two recordings, I've sort of had that because I've found a group online who really like agricultists, which is great for me. And so I'm able to just play it again and again and again, and I just blow it up between each play test. And because of this abundance mentality, I don't feel like I have to play the full thing. I'll just play like two rounds and be like, okay, cool, that isn't working, but I'm glad I tried it. Or like, oh, that is working, but it's broken for this reason. Okay, great. So yeah, that, again, that's not like a design lesson, but if you can ever get in that position where like you have a best friend who you stay with or he lives down the road and you'd be like, hey, I'm on a roll with this game. Can we just go into like manic mode and run it every two minutes? Yeah. <laughs> My friend Sean is that for agriculturists. He just loves it. He's just like, I want this to be the game that I want it to be. And so anytime day or night I ping him, he'll basically play agriculturists with me. <laughs> it's annoying because right now it's three player minimum. So we need another person, but he has played that game again and again and again and again and watched me blow it up and blow it up and take it in different directions. And afterwards, just like with Alex and Robotopia, chat about it with me for like half an hour afterwards. Um, so yeah, that, that was a really valuable part of the process but i think yeah that, that, that's some of the key things that i learned from robotopia yeah and i want to jump on that a little bit too just how valuable that is for me as well like i won't do that with most of my playtest groups but i do have a couple friends where i'm super close with them and we can just do that we can start playing either of our games and say this is really rough we know what we're doing here get a couple turns in and say okay this is broken can we do a hot fix and just test yeah. to see what it's yeah. like for and this and you get to skip the teach too yeah <laughs> like which actually saves a lot of time it really does and it saves you a lot of context too even between versions right because they know yeah. like what you're trying to do with it they can see where it's going which can help people when it's like a more concept than game you know we were talking before like you're just trying generally to do this the end goal hasn't worked out yet they can sort of roll with those punches a little bit more easily because they know where you're going with it yeah um, oh, one yeah. more thing with Robotopia, actually. Yeah. Um, I This was, I think, the first game I meticulously versioned. So I have every version from 1 through the final was about 38. 
And weirdly enough, when we got to dev, so when John was, was devving it and we had to throw out a bunch of guild powers for various reasons, because that was one of the things that I really focused on was like balancing all the guild powers. I needed to come up with just a bunch of guild powers very quickly. <laughs> and this, uh, we might have mentioned on the show before, this is my superpower. I'm able to generate content very quickly. In this case, I was able to pull up version three and be like, what were the powers then? Because the game's changed so much. And so often I'd be like, oh, that power that made sense in version three and then didn't from version four to 25 is actually perfect for right now. Or that idea is one that I forgot about and haven't explored like that space. And so, yeah, versioning and being able to go back and be like, oh, that was an interesting power. Turn uh, green robots into something. The something doesn't exist anymore and the green robots don't work exactly the same way anymore. And you don't get them the same way anymore and you don't have this power in the same way as you used to. But <laughs> turning green robots into the new thing actually still works. That was really useful and, and valuable. So you had mentioned that you had 10 versions done in three weeks and you had 38 versions total. Do you want to speak to like the amount of time it takes in total for the project? Because a lot of people who are designing are just playtesting once a week or once a month. Um, so oh yeah, yeah, and 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 also I work differently to you and to everyone, and to like everyone designs differently. Tim Armstrong and TC Petty are two designers who also work in this kind of Euro area. Very different designers, very different games. But they have this commonality that they're probably not even aware of. Tim or TC, if you're listening, guess what? You guys have a commonality, <laughs> which is that I'm an iterative designer. I will pull out something crap and work on it until it's less crap and less crap and less crap until hopefully it turns the stage to good. Like I, I said that robots was sort of fun from the first playtest. Remember, that first playtest was from the ashes of five different games. <laughs> so first playtest, quote unquote, is, uh, is a bit of a misnomer. TC and Tim will sit and ruminate on a design and think about it for a long time and then pull it out and it'll go through like three changes before being signed. Holy cow. <laughs> it takes them like sometimes years of just pondering and journaling and thinking on it. And obviously every game's different, even beyond every design is different. So this is just how I work. This is not me saying like, here is how to design exactly like me, because this is just happens to be my process that works for me. And I, I like my, my superpower is abundance. Like I can just create and create and create and create. And I, I said earlier that I need to make a full game and that's sort of annoying when you're trying to prototype quickly because I can't just be like, I'll just make this one change. I, have to, I, I guess if, if the rest of the game stays the same, but quite often I'll be like, okay, I want to make this one change and then I'll redesign everything around this change. And so I would say an average version would take me anywhere from three to 10 hours, like each draft. And then... Uh, maybe an hour to 90 minutes of playtesting, including the teach. But again, you got to remember this game came out of the corpse of five other games. <laughs> and then and then all the work you do as a, as a publisher and as a dev, like the development process... Actually, I tracked my time, so I can tell you. The development process in 2021, I spent 66 hours on the like creative part of working in robots. And that's meetings with John, that's coming up with new stuff and we had to cut stuff, that's playtesting it when I can. In terms of years too, uh, this game didn't exist at all before... It's in the designer diaries, I think it's like 2018. And then Robotopia specifically, like this version that came out of the corpses didn't exist until 2019. And then it was mostly done by early 2020. So I spent about a year on this game, probably about, I would guess, 200 to 300 hours in that year. Wow, that actually sounds not that high. <laughs> like... Yeah, uh, I might I might be misunderestimating too, to quote George Bush. Um, <laughs> when I say like, I'd say three to five hours on a prototype, it might be 20 hours and I just don't notice. I tend to get really tunnel vision-y when I'm prototyping. <laughs> like I said, I started properly tracking my time this year. 
and I was shocked when I would see like at the end of the week how many hours I'd spent on agriculture because I'd be like yeah that took me like three or four hours and I'd look at the time tracking it was like 12 hours because I'll have a TV on in the background while I'm fixing the prototype and stuff like that right yeah I, I, would, I would guess about 300 hours off the back of eight years of designing so you just said that the version of Robotopia that exists that like even the core idea that came from the ashes that started in 2019 now it's near the end of 2021. There's the saying that like all artists hate everything that they did from five years ago, right? <laughs> now, obviously you've still been doing stuff on it, right? Like we were still doing dev into late into the process, but if you were starting from scratch, is there anything that you would have considered doing differently than you actually ended up doing? The boring answer is I would have made a different game. And <laughs> I, I love Robotope. I really think it's very good, but it does something in a space that I really enjoy as a player, but I don't think is as commercially successful. Not as grabby to an audience perhaps so like robotopia is my kind of game i will happily play it any day i <laughs> i'm a little biased but i freaking <laughs> love it i really enjoyed this game but what it does is it puts the players a little bit on rails so i'll, I'll use istanbul as an example so istanbul every turn you'll move one person and take one action you get some power-ups during the game and those power-ups make that one action a little bit better and sometimes you'll play an action card that lets you do two actions <laughs> And that's as far off the rails as it goes. As someone who loves puzzles, I love that. It's so like crunchy and gritty. And I just like look at them like, I can only do this many actions. How can I maximize these actions? So I get a lot of joy out of like, I only have this one action. How can I make it as efficient as is humanly possible? In Robotopia, similarly, like the best you'll ever do is a turn where you play a robot to activate three spaces and multiple guild abilities and an action card. And that feels great. Again, it's like juicing that action for as much as it is possibly worth. But in the end, that's the ceiling. That's as high as you can go on that turn. Whereas I think there's something alluring to like the, the board gaming audience in an action that lets you go off the rails. I haven't played Terraforming Mars in five years, but I think it's a good example of like, you will have a turn where you end up activating every single card in your arsenal and just like exploding the thing and that's a standard turn that's not even a special turn like mage knight is another good example like by the end of mage knight you are a walking god <laughs> <laughs> like at the start it's a struggle to cross one hex like that that that's all you can do in a turn by the end you're like okay i leap from here to the mountain completely kill that dragon and now that the dragon's dead i can shop at the thing and i'm gonna buy this thing and in the process i'm also gonna heal myself back up and like a turn in in mage knight or terraforming mars or even wingspan to a certain extent like by the end of the game you are having nutso turns right yeah yeah robotopia in istanbul and even maybe feast for odin like they never reach those heights and I think that's the direction that as a designer, I'm trying to hit more because I just think that the, those games have more potential for like getting into people's brains. We were having this conversation off the air a while ago about... That doesn't sound like us. <laughs> <laughs> about how every successful game has some degree of escalation or virtually every successful game has some degree of escalation. I think it might have been on air, wasn't it? Did we? Oh, which episode was it that? I don't know, I just remember challenging you to find me example. I probably do that off air as well. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, like we were saying on or off the air, <laughs> write in and let us know. Uh, I'm not going to listen to every one of our previous episodes to find that. <laughs> yeah, it, it seems like that's a really key part of most successful games. And, it, it and, makes... and again, Robotopia does have escalation because you get these guild powers and you get better robots. 
mm-hmm. but it's it's very controlled. It's a very controlled escalation. Yeah, on rails is what you said earlier, and I think that's a yeah. I mean, for example, there's a rule in the game: you can only play one action card a turn, and that needs to be there for a bunch of different reasons. Yeah, but it just means that you can never have that all explosive turn where you do everything, like like you can in um in your terraforming Marses. Yeah, my go-to example for this is uh, Glory to Rome, where you can stack actions on top of crazy abilities so it's like on your turn when you take an action i take six of that action and every time i do that i get to do something insane like (laughs) you you could be like i'm going to draw a card okay cool you're gonna draw a card all right i'm gonna draw six cards every time i'm going to discard my hand redraw (laughs) chewing through the deck finding exactly what i need yeah and then each one time I discard, that triggers another crazy, but it's it's nuts out. In Robotopia, like, those turns that happen at the end, they feel really good, but they are the exception. You still then go back to like, and now I place a yellow robot and get a green cube. Whereas in these games that I'm talking about, by the end, every turn tends to be explosive. Yeah. And so I don't think every game needs to be like this. Like, Paladins of the West Kingdom is also very controlled. Like, the power from that comes not from like, ah, this turn I get to do a million things, but just like you get to have more turns at the end. And I love that game. Again, it's, it's very much for me. But um, if I was designing a new game today, which I tend to do, <laughs> I would tend to like remove those. Those rails, as a designer, they make you feel very safe because you're like, ah, the game can't break. And that's the beautiful thing about Robotopia. Like, I can have this shuffleable board because in hundreds of playtests and hundreds of configurations, I've never found anything even remotely close to breaking. Like, I don't think it's possible for that board to break. But that's partially because it's it's a little bit on rails. And so as a designer, I feel very safe and comfortable in that area. But I think to really hit the spirit, to re- reference our Hookcraft and Spirit episode, I think to really get into people's brains and have this be a game with spirit, you need to start taking those risks. I fear that Robotopia didn't take risks in that sense. Again, I still love it. <laughs> I feel like I'm, I'm bagging my own game. But um, that, that that's what I would do differently if I was designing it from scratch today. The other thing is that right now to win, you have to get four guilds and... Istanbul, I realized uh, with a conversation with Jeff, actually, Jeff was like, in Istanbul, you can take five of any rubies. You have many options. Whereas in Robotopia, you have to take the four guilds. And there's multiple options for each, but you don't have that same agency of like, at the start of Istanbul, I can be like, ah, I'm not even going to bother my rain right. I'm not even going to bother with money. I'm just going to do this other thing. Whereas in Robotopia, you are sort of forced to do everything. And again, as an efficiency puzzle, that's really good, but it does it does take away agency a little bit. What I would like to know is from the listener if you've enjoyed this, because if you enjoy these designer diaries, I had a game released recently called uh, That Time You Killed Me. It came out since our last episode, I think. And so doing a design diary on that could be really fun if people are really loving them. If they're not, we won't. <laughs> I don't want to waste your time. <laughs> For sure. They're a little self-indulgent, so I love them, but I don't know if uh, <laughs> I don't know if that translates to the audience. I also have fun doing these, so uh, what, what more do you want? If both of us are having fun, then they have to have fun, right? Well, we're not allowed to have fun, AJ. There's oh, no. only one part of the oh! podcast where we're allowed to have fun. I always forget. It's so hard to not have fun when I'm on with you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, the Discord's been really bopping lately. Uh, it's been lovely. If you haven't yet, come join the uh, the Jellybean Discord. We have a fun problems channel. We've been chatting with listeners and come get involved. It's been great to have conversations about what we're doing in the episodes and what people want and thoughts. And uh, it's, it's been a lot of compliments, but that's not why I like it. I like the discussion. <laughs> so now we're on to the aforementioned only part of the podcast that we're allowed to have fun. Peter, do you want to do the fun question or do you want me to do that? Yes, indeed, AJ. So I have a question for you. What is your earliest memory? Ooh, good question. Unless it's dark, in which case I'll come up with a different question. (laughs) (laughs) I think it would be when I was like 
four or five or six. Like, I don't know what age I was. I, I talked to my mom, but I remember the conversation when I was like, hey, what happens when you die? And my family are Christians. Oh, wow. What does happen? I've always wondered. <laughs> my my mom was like, well, some people believe <laughs> this and some people believe that. And she was like, but we believe that when you die, if you're a Christian, you go to heaven. And if you aren't, then you go to hell. And I was like, oh, uh, what are you? And she's like, I- I'm a Christian. And I was like, okay, well, I, I want to go there too to-, to hang out with you. So <laughs> um, That makes sense. Yep. <laughs> so it's, it's a weird one because like... I just remember that conversation happening and like being uh, like I remember sitting around the table where it happened, but then like huge time jump to like the next memory I would have. Yeah. So I've always moved around a lot. I moved when I was four. I moved when I was like eight. I've just had a bunch of houses and then obviously I've changed countries and cities and stuff like that. And that makes it really handy to like segment memories because <laughs> hmm. uh, you, you, know, you know the classic thing that old folks do. I do that now. Where I'm like, well, no, it can't have been that year because I wasn't living there. <laughs> and it's, it must be so annoying to listen to, but I need to like pinpoint where I was <laughs> to like get the story to work. And so conveniently, I, I moved when I was fairly young. And so any, any memory before moving, I know is like a very early memory. When I was born until I was, I don't know, five or six or so, uh, we lived in a house on Levy Street in Glenbrook in Australia, in uh, New South Wales. And I distinctly remember my sister's first birthday and she's four years younger than me, so I must have been five. Because I was blowing up balloons, but I was terrified of blowing up the balloon because I didn't want it to explode. (laughs) And so mum was like, you can just just blow it up. I was like, no, but what if it it pops? And then I think my dad, who's a bit of a rascal, like popped a balloon and and scared me and, and so on and so forth. So yeah, being afraid to blow up a balloon. How are you with balloons now? I'm fine with balloons now, yeah. I have no issue with them. Me and balloons, we made our piece. Possibly earlier than that, I dressed up as a clown. Like, I found a clown outfit that my parents had bought me, and I dressed up and came into their bedroom at night, and they were like, ha, 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 this is very funny. And I was bawling with tears, being like, you're laughing at me, don't oh. laugh at me. And they were like, honey, you're, you're being a clown. Like, <laughs> I knew that laughing at someone was mocking them, and oh. I dressed up as a clown, and they were laughing at me, and I was, I was crushed. And That's that, so That might have been younger than five. <laughs> oh, my gosh. But I, I just remember being so... Fr- I still remember so much of the frustration of childhood. Like, yeah. I love being a grown-up. Anyone who looks back and is like, ah, the golden years of childhood, I, I cannot empathize with that. I love the freedom of being a grown-up. I love the knowing stuff like understanding how the world works yeah being a child was a very frustrating process for me yeah man i i did not have fun in uh in childhood <laughs> um actually you just reminded me of kindergarten stuff and kindergarten was age five so this this probably would have been earlier i remember the first day of kindergarten or whatever my parents had the seats down in the back because they had uh, just been transporting something and they were like, oh, hey, we'll just put you in the back without the seat. Because it, it was a really short drive. It was the yeah, 90s. Yeah. I, I get it. <laughs> anyway, I was bawling my eyes out because I was like, my parents don't love me enough to give me a seat. <laughs> That's true. They didn't. Yeah. And when I got out, I was bawling my eyes out. My parents were like, oh, my gosh, what's wrong? And, and they were like, we thought it would be, like, fun. Like, you get to, like, just hang out in the back and not have to be, like, locked into your seat. <laughs> And you're like, I want the rails. Don't design a game that lets me do too many actions. I want the rails. So, yeah, anyway. Uh, listeners, jump into our Discord and tell us what your earliest memory is. Let's, let's invite you to yeah. also have fun with us because I would love to hear other people's answer to that question. Yeah, that sounds fun. For the teaser, we're not going to do a proper episode in December. We're just going to release the previously hinted at Inhuman Conditions episode. 
So we'll release that in December. And we're not going to release one on January 1st. And we'll see you in the new year. And we'll be back in the new year with Drugs Part (laughs) 2. Wait, not drugs. Chemicals. Chemicals Part 2. Why do I think it was drugs? (laughs) You know, I, I will give you a teaser for that one. Uh, I got my friend who's in psych to uh, to listen to that episode and give me notes. He responded with pages <laughs> and so many articles. So that episode will just be us reading an email for 45 minutes. <laughs> that episode will be titled Follow-Up with Nothing Else. <laughs> <laughs> Join us then on Fun Problems. I'm Peter C. Hayward. I'm AJ Brandon. Thank you for listening. Thanks for joining us. You can follow us on Facebook or Twitter at Fun Problems Pod or reach us via email at funproblemspodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you, and if you enjoyed the podcast, please tell a friend. I'm not going to say I'm very good at worker placements. There's a spider behind you. Oh! Uh. <laughs> this will be the bit after the credits. The spider was in front of me. <laughs> as soon as you said that, I was like, that's not my hair moving. <laughs> You know why I thought it was behind you? Why? Because spiders are bigger in Australia.